Hi everyone, I'm David Green. Welcome to episode two of series six of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Our memory can lead us astray in an astonishing number of ways, including by causing us to remember things we think we've done, but actually haven't. My guest on today's episode of the podcast is Dr. Julia Shaw, a psychologist, honorary research associate at University College London, author of two fascinating books, The Memory Illusion and Evil, and founder of artificial intelligence-based reporting tool, Spot. Julia is best known for her work in the areas of memory and criminal psychology. It's a fascinating topic, and as you'll learn, one that has significant relevance in the workplace. In our conversation, Julia and I discuss the role of unconscious bias and the dangers of people using this as an excuse for their far more visible biases, the application of memory science in the workplace and how our memories can let us down, particularly in stressful situations. We talk about how technology and analytics is helping improve reporting on episodes of harassment and discrimination in the workplace. And as with all our guests, we look into the crystal ball and ponder what the role of HR will be in 2025. Before we get started, a brief word from our sponsor for Series 6 of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. As research increasingly shows how important diversity is for business, companies worldwide strive to ensure their teams are inclusive, productive and remunerated fairly. GATSquare offers employers insightful pay analytics software and assessment, working with global corporations to measure and take action around inclusion and fair pay. Take a look at GATSquare's current framework, benchmark your work, and learn where you need to invest your efforts to foster change today. As competition for talent increases, there's never been a better time to accelerate fair play. Learn more, head to gatsquare.com forward slash accelerate. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Julia Shaw, author, scientist, and co-founder at Spot to the Digital HR Leaders podcast and the video series. Welcome to the show, Julia. Great to be here. Great to have you. Um, can you provide us with a quick introduction to yourself and the various things that you're involved with? Sure. So I am a memory scientist at UCL. And I'm going to ask you a question about that in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. And I do research in particular on the fallibility of memory. So when we get things wrong um, and how that links in with bad behavior. So basically crime and memory. So things like eyewitness testimony, things like um, people who are telling stories about crimes that they've seen or that they've experienced uh, or other negative emotional experiences is the way that we normally talk about it. And so, so that's my, my background. And as part of that, I've written some books. So I've written a book called The Memory Illusion, where I talk about false memories in everyday life, but also in extreme cases. And I wrote a book on evil um, called uh, The Science Behind Humanity's Dark Sides. And it was... That's really exploring the deep, dark, sort of lurking things inside each and every one of us and how they can manifest and how we can prevent them from manifesting. We'll definitely come back to that a bit later <laughs> in the conversation. Yeah. And then, and then the final sort of hat that I wear, I guess, is uh, that of co-founder of Spot, which is a tool to report harassment and discrimination, which kind of marries my two interests. And so it helps prevent, hopefully, bad behavior in workplaces. It helps yeah. people deal with harassment and discrimination when it happens and report it better using evidence-based interviewing from memory science. So it all comes together in spot. Great. We've got plenty to talk about then. We really do. Looking forward to that. So we both spoke at the, the COGX Future of Work um, show back in June, I think it was, on yeah. a particularly bad summer's day in the UK where it was pouring with rain. Yeah. So we had to speak with no electricity. It was pouring through the roof. It was pouring through the such roof. Such a storm that it broke through the roof. I was yeah. wearing a coat and I was still cold. Yeah. Um, but you spoke a lot about um, bias. 
and that, and and I think this is very relevant to the workplace, obviously. Um, and I think it'd be great to to talk about some of the highlights from that now, because I think it's something listeners would be particularly interested in. So, what are what are the different types of bias that we would typically come across in the workplace? Oh, we come across hundreds of bias. Okay. I mean, the main I, ones. So. <laughs> I, I think one of the things that I, I I often dislike about the conversation around bias is actually uh, the term unconscious bias. Yes, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, and that's that's one of the things I was critiquing in this talk is the. This idea that, I think it almost lets us off the hook, this idea that, well, I don't have control over all my biases, they're unconscious, I don't even know they're there. And so if I act um, in an inappropriate way towards other people, it's not really my fault, it's my sort of broken brain. And I, I know that that's not always how it's used, but I think it can be used that way, and I think that's really problematic. And so we need to be very careful, because a lot of biases are actually pretty conscious. Yeah. Like, you know you don't like people, yeah. and you might not know exactly what it is, but you might even know exactly what it is, and you might have very obvious stereotypes. So I guess with bias, I'm, I just... <sighs> I'm always careful that we don't overuse this word and we don't try to categorize things too much into these sort of specific biases. But one of the fallacies, certainly, that I like, which is related to a bias, yeah. is what, what's called the perfectionist fallacy. And so one thing that we see with um, the, this talk around biases, sort of, you know, everything from uh, racism to uh, gender-based assumptions to assumptions based on, you know, pregnancy and, and sexuality and sex. Um, I mean, with all of these... I think one of the core things we need to do is change the conversation, change it towards being allies. And uh, yeah, I mean, with perfectionism, I think people are worried that they're not going to do enough, that, yeah. they're, that they'd rather do nothing than not do enough, or rather do nothing than do it wrong. And so what we see is that some organizations are trailblazers, and they're going for it, and they're implementing techniques to you know, tackle these issues and tackle these biases. And other people are just saying, well, they're all unconscious biases, I can't do anything yeah. about it anyway <laughs> and so they fault. do nothing and it's it's called the perfectionist fallacy is that if i can't do it perfectly i shouldn't do it at all and i think that's devastating so we need to be very careful with that and i think this probably links to technology mm -hmm. so a lot of the a lot of people say oh we can't use ai because you know it would there'll just be bias that's inherent in it but of course that's only if you train the ai badly with with, with the bias that's already there um, and it's, it's probably something you know what do you feel the role of technology could be in, in reducing and, and hopefully removing bias I mean, technology has tremendous potential to remove a lot of human bias. It's, of course, not perfect, and it's great that we're having a conversation about how human biases manifest in technological biases in various ways. But that doesn't mean that we can't absolutely overcome a huge plethora of these things uh, by using tech, by using things that can't judge, that don't care about, you know, what color someone's skin is or where someone comes from. And, you know, so that, I mean, that's why we built Spot is specifically because interviewers in HR situations where someone is coming to them to report harassment or discrimination, they bring assumptions with them about things like truthfulness and what that looks like, about assumptions about the particular individual or their relationship, the known relationships that they have with others in the workplace. A bot doesn't do that. A bot just asks the questions it's told to ask, regardless of who you are, in exactly the right way every single time. And, and it records it, and it's much more neutral. So I think, yes, it can't overcome it entirely, but it can be a massive leap yeah. towards gathering better information and that better data can be used to make better decisions. Let's say you've got a, someone that's a poor performer coming to tell you about reporting harassment of someone who's very senior in the organization, very well respected, very high performer. Yeah. Then I guess the human maybe interviewing would immediately might not believe just because the person's a low performer, which has absolutely nothing to do with it right. whatsoever, of course. So. 
um, whereas the technology doesn't have that that problem. It's also not. I think bias is almost seen as this dirty word,、mm. um, and it's like everybody has biases, and this is why we need to accept them, and we need to then figure out how to overcome them,、um, and that and that's where technology can help. And so it's not that you're bad at your job because you have biases. I mean, sure, you should be working on them ideally,、um, but ideally you're using tools to, to circumvent them because we're humans, and so that's where we need to be very. Just recognize that, and we are going to make assumptions about people. We are going to have that, you know. I, I like the boss more, maybe, or I feel like I'm committed. The boss is paying my salary, of course.、Um, and so, of, of course, we have alliances. Of course, we have these natural tendencies. And yeah, I, I think it, it it takes a lot of courage almost to accept that. I think, and to then actually say, yes, I need some help with this. So, Julie, you're a memory scientist. Yes. Which sounds as cool as it is fascinating to me, anyway. So, what does a memory scientist actually do? So, a memory scientist is someone who studies memory, and as a scientist, <laughs> and in particular for me, it means that I go in and I look at memories and fallibility of memory. So, I mostly look actually at false memories. So I look at when you misremember things, you think that you remember something that never actually happened. Yeah. And so my entry point into this was actually false confessions. And so people who are wrongly accused of crimes, and then they actually confess to the crime, even though they're innocent, and potentially land in in prison or have other negative consequences. And so the question is, how does that happen? And for me, it wasn't just how does it happen in terms of coercion, because I could, you know, if I torture you or if I do enough terrible things to you, eventually you'll、Please、tell、don't. me. <laughs> eventually, you'll tell me you did it, whatever it is.、Uh, but with some people, there's this curious phenomenon that they actually what's called internalize the, the confession, and they actually believe that they did this bad thing. And so for me, that was that was fascinating because I think it's such a fundamental. Piece of our identity is all this memory. Like, how, who am I? What have I done? What kinds of things am I capable of? And so, as part of my PhD, I、um, did a study, which ended up getting—I mean, so much—it sort of went viral, and now it's been cited in international criminal courts. It's been cited like it's—it's it's been absolutely phenomenal what the study has done. And what I did is I implanted false memories of committing crime into undergraduate students. Okay. And so I had people who had never had police contact. I had them come into my lab under false pretenses. So they thought that they were there for、uh, an emotional childhood memory study. They knew I'd contacted their loved ones beforehand, and that they, those loved ones had told me information about them. So I had insider personal information about their lives. And then I、uh, spoke to them about a true memory first. That happened about seven years ago. So when they were about thirteen, fourteen, and then I asked them about a false one, and I said, "Hey, so you remember that time, that instant where you were in contact with the police?" And the police called your parents. That's how they found out. And you assaulted someone. You assaulted someone with a weapon, or you stole something, depending on the condition. And、wow. then, you know, three weeks later, three interviews later, one week apart each, you would be telling me all about it. And so, seventy percent of my sample said that they had what they did. They had these multisensory. They're called false memories. So they were telling me how it felt, how it smelled, how it tasted, how why they were there, who they assaulted, what the police looked like,、um, and they have tremendous amount of details. And so. What that means, though, is I mean, a obviously there was ethical approval. There was a whole framework for that. There were debriefed at the end, so of course,、um, hope as much as possible these memories were undone. Yeah. But what it, what it was important for was to show how easily using leading and suggestive interview practices and some trust. You can get people to believe a completely fabricated past, even one that's really negative for their their own sense of self worth, and so. From that, basically, what I learned even more than before was the importance of asking the right questions. Yeah, 
And so that's what I now do. So I now teach people how to ask the right questions. That's what I built in the spot. It's also what I do with police and military. And I, I train, especially for large investigations, I train people on how to ask the right questions of witnesses and suspects so that they get high quality information and they don't contaminate memories on the way. So let's, let's link it to the workplace because obviously that's mm -hmm. where you're applying some of this, this skill and that knowledge that you have. Mm -hmm. What is the role of, of memory science in the workplace? And if you're able to bring it to life with a couple of examples, that, that'd be great. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 for me, the most important piece is, again, getting high quality information. So just like a police investigation, if you have an HR investigation, you want as high quality information as possible. Yeah. And you want the evidence that you're using, whatever it is, to be high quality. And now high quality from a memory standpoint, because often in workplaces or in police settings, you, have, you rely heavily on people's memories. So like a significant part of your evidence, perhaps all of it, is individuals' memories. And so the question is, how do you know if these memories are any good? And then what do you do with them and how do you preserve them? And so how do you know if they're any good? The first question is basically, ideally, they're contemporaneous. So ideally, the event happened relatively recently. Mm -hmm. Ideally, they haven't spoken with too many other people, especially other people who were there, because that can contaminate. Ideally, you know, there's, there's all these ideals. Um, but what that means is ideally, you're recording on your own immediately after something happens, what happened? Yeah. On your own. <laughs> not to a human ideally and so this is why we created spot is because you can do it immediately on your own you can log into the chat bot you can record it and you can make a timestamp pdf which shows exactly when you remember this information and it asks you non-leading neutral questions so that's the other piece of it is the questions and so in, a, in an hr setting i am i continue to be surprised that most people who are hr leaders even don't actually uh, ever receive training on they, they receive training on processes, but they don't receive training on memory. And I think it's really difficult to consistently ask appropriate questions without understanding how memory works. So just like I would never train the police and just say, here, do this, here's a list of things. That's really difficult because people are going to go off script, they're going to get it wrong because mm -hmm. they don't know what it is that they're getting wrong until you teach them some of the core concepts of the, you know, the flexibility and that, that sort of recombining of information. And so... Yeah, so I guess in, in terms of the workplace, I wish that people were trained on memory. I wish that we um, focus on this, not in a, I think sometimes it's seen as like truth detecting, which is wrong. That's the wrong premise. Like you're, you shouldn't ever be going into a situation going, is this person lying? Yeah. That's not a useful starting point for anything, basically. Assume that people aren't out to hurt each other. Assume that people are there because, I mean, if someone's even... Frankly, even if they are, if, if something is distorted, if someone has gone out of their way to go to HR, something is wrong, right? Yeah. Like you don't just randomly show up at HR and say, I need to tell you something. Um, they're unhappy and there's, they need some help. And so, but for me, I think it's the, again, training people on, on memory or at least having them understand or using something like Spot in the first instance to gather information can really help. So in terms of examples, um, I mean, one of the, the key things that... Uh, even in, in criminal investigations. So people who are trained on what's called the cognitive interview, mm. which is best practices in memory interviewing, which is also the foundation for SPOT. Um, people who are trained, so police officers in the UK who are trained in the cognitive interview uh, are told to not interrupt people. Now you've been very good actually. <laughs> but most people, even when given this instruction, especially during what's called the free recall phase, so the tell me everything you can remember, which is always the first question you should ask. Um, open. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tell me everything you can remember. People interrupt, on average, someone every seven seconds. 
<laughs> seven seconds. And we know that interruptions are a huge barrier to disclosing information. Um, and so in HR settings, uh, we know that this is also likely to happen. And in research that we've done where we compared our bots to real people who are being trained in, in, a, in a master's course to be HR professionals, they got way fewer details. They got way lower quality because they weren't necessarily asking things in the right order, um, and they weren't uh, and, and they were interrupting people too much. And that stops people from telling their story, and that stops you from getting the details. And I guess with an innocuous incident mm -hmm. that you might think, oh, I really don't want us to go to HR about this because then it's on record. Mm -hmm. Whereas Spot allows you to record the innocuous incident. Mm -hmm. You might think it's innocuous, but if this perpetrator has done lots of other of these things, then mm -hmm. this can be flagged up to HR, even if you're doing it anonymously. Right. And they can say, okay, there's a pattern of behavior here from this perpetrator. Correct. So now we might want to actually investigate this a little bit more. Whereas all those people hadn't reported it, yeah. gone to HR, you wouldn't know. Correct. So, so we found early on that one of the main barriers to reporting is fear of retaliation, which unfortunately is often justified because people do get retaliated against quite often. And so the only way that a lot of people will ever report, according to a vast amount of literature on this now, is by having an anonymous option. And people often, HR professionals often get scared. They go, I, I don't, I don't. Either they say, well, we have something like that. We have this whistleblowing hotline. Then I ask them how many people use it. They say nobody. Uh, basically, it's a very much a tick box exercise. We haven't got any problems. That's yeah, why. exactly. They want phones. Oh, yeah. This is so, man. I don't even want to get started on that. Because <laughs> um, you're not hearing about things doesn't mean they're not happening. Um, but the, and again, it's not failure that you're hearing about things. Like, that's a success yeah. If people are brave yeah. enough to come to you. It's not your fault, is it? No, yeah. It's, yeah. it's you can then help them, and that means they trust you. So, Julia, we're going to talk about the anonymity. Yeah, so, so the anonymity piece for us, again, we, we identified it very early on as a major barrier to reporting, and it makes sense. Um, and you're absolutely right that, especially for smaller incidents, to some extent, um, but even for severe incidents, uh, people often feel this isn't worth it or the potential retaliation isn't worth it. But if you give them the option of anonymity, what they can do is they can give you a heads up. And so you're not getting all the details. You're not getting necessarily even the exact perpetrator's name, but you're getting sort of a flag that in management, there's an issue with, I don't know, race discrimination. Or in this particular situation, someone is, is bullying someone. And, and, and if you hear enough of those anonymous reports, even if you just hear two, frankly, even if you just hear one, you should probably be paying attention. But if you hear multiple, certainly, you might go, oh, I can triangulate this. And you can then also respond to those people who've come forward and say, we've had you know, three similar accounts. Mm. Would you now be willing to identify yourself? And so you can work with that, sure, limited data, but it's basically, you have two options right now as an organization. One is you have no idea what's happening, or two, you allow for anonymity and you have some idea what's happening. Yeah. And I know what I would want for my company. I mean, I don't want to be completely in the dark. I don't want to have some random press scandal suddenly because I didn't know what was going on in my company. I'd much rather have people feel safe, even if it's anonymous, who come to me. Okay. So let's, let's talk about how Spot works. So let's say something's happened. Mm -hmm. How do I actually use how do I use Spot and Spot and report an incident? Yeah, so you would go to talktospot.com, and so that's the main landing page. Or if you're a, with an organization that works with us, you would go through your sort of custom 
link, which is usually all over the HR site, is um, is sent out through regular email so that people are reminded. Because we all know that there's sometimes tool overload, <laughs> and people need to be reminded that certain tools exist. And you can do that by also packaging information. So this is the nice thing about things like harassment and discrimination education, yeah. is you can build in. You can have a so we have these micro education videos we call them, where in you know one minute what is harassment and it's illustrated and it's really nice. And so you can say, hey, we're just you know. It's little bits to help you digest this information. You know, once every couple months you get an email which gives you something to learn, plus here's a link if, you've, if you want to report anything. So it's a nice way I think of doing it. It doesn't feel too intrusive and it's not, and this is the other thing people sometimes ask, is that this sort of me having this kind of tool in my company, is that some sort of admission of guilt? <laughs> and I think that is absolutely the wrong way to look at this. If anything, it your organization, and so we found universally that organizations that have implemented Spot trust in the organization has gone up yeah. because it shows your employees, even if they've never been harassed, that a you take this seriously if it were to happen, and to those who have experienced these situations, that you know you might actually listen. Like there's a way to speak up that feels safe. So, so you would go to talktospot.com either through the bespoke link or um, just. There's a free version as well for employees. And then you go through the chat. So first it gives you some FAQs so you can learn. We can build some trust, basically. You can learn about how Spot works, what we do with your data. And then it takes you into a chat bot. Yeah. And so it feels like WhatsApp a bit, but it's with a, with a bot, not with a human. And we make that very clear, and we think that's one of the key benefits. And mm. people say that's one of the key benefits, is they don't feel like they're being judged. And it's a neutral, non-leading, non-judgmental interview based entirely on memory science. And so it gets, it's, it's very neutral. It's not your therapist. You're not there for emotional support. You're entirely there to factually record what happened. Uh, but it, that in and of itself can be a really nice thing. And so you go through, it asks you these questions. It uses natural language processing, which is like baby AI. So it recognizes certain words and phrases that you have used as the employee. And yeah. it pulls them out and says, you mentioned this. Can you tell me more about that? And that's best practices to get more details. And so you go through it, you create a timestamp PDF. That PDF you can then decide to keep or save in yep. your dashboard. Um, and so that's if things escalate then. And this is like most people, I'd say, well, actually not as many as we thought. So like 40% of people stop there initially at least and save it. And that makes sense because if you're not sure if something might escalate, you just keep it. And I mean, the person might apologize the next day and it might be resolved. Or it might escalate, and a week later, you know, something worse happens, or something worse happens, and then you go, okay, now I've got these three reports. I'm going to send them all to HR. Yeah, yeah. And so it makes sense that that's how people are using it, and it's nice for people. They need that. They need that power. I think. Otherwise, it goes too quick, and you go, oh, but I, I wasn't ready. Um, and so then, when you are ready, you can send it to your employer. You can do it anonymously or not. Again, there we find about just over fifty percent uh, choose to not be anonymous, and just under fifty choose to be anonymous. So it's sort of depends on the person, and then HR can respond regardless. And so even if the person is anonymous, it goes, it goes sends them back into a custom chat that you've selected, asking again evidence-based questions. So even if you're in a rush as an HR person, you just select the questions, sends them back, they answer more questions, get back to you. It's all managed in the dashboard. In the dashboard, we also have our training that you can manage and send out. We have our educational videos that you can send out automatically, um, and, that's, and that's the... That's the tool. That's how it works. That's how it works. And you set up Spot about two years, 2017, is that right? Uh, two and a half years ago. Two and a half years ago. So it was about, uh, it was about four months before the Me Too hashtag took off. Oh, right, okay. Yeah. yeah. So it was it was when Uber, the Uber scandal You didn't cause starting. it, did you? <laughs> no. We were so appreciative that people were talking about this well, issue, yeah, though, or related course. issues. 
Um, and our tools for all kinds of harassment and discrimination, not just sexual. But it's uh, absolutely amazing what's happened. Since mm, it's we changed. Started. The world's changed, really. Oh, completely has. Like, so. And there's there's laws coming in now that are you know making it mandatory that we pay more attention to these things, that we get better options, that we do better training. It's wonderful. So it's good. And you said when we were preparing last week, you you said that actually two and a half years on people aren't using the tool how you thought they would use it. And you've dug into the data a little bit more and you've found out some quite interesting things, which I guess is helping you shape the, the future path. Oh, certainly. So we, uh, certainly me, <laughs> I can't speak for my co-founders, but my original impression based on the literature, so it wasn't totally just guessing, mm. but based on the literature, I sort of thought, if we can crack this an anonymity piece, we've got it. Yeah. And we'll get sort of a 10x reporting. So like not more harassment, but more no, reporting. but on more it. reporting, yeah. Right. And because we, it was so dramatically underreported. I mean, if you look, I mean, the most conservative, so the highest figures for these things say that about 30% of incidents are reported. But a lot of numbers are closer to like five. Yeah. And so, I mean, the overwhelming majority you're just not hearing about. And so I thought, oh, wow, great. If we build anonymity, if we give, you know, make it clear that people have control over their own data for as long as they want, boom, solved. Not enough. <laughs> Turns out that is only one part of the problem. And you do get more reports. You get different kinds of information using that. But it does not go up 10x. It goes up about 50%. It goes up a little bit, basically. And you get some that you probably wouldn't have caught before. But what's really key is building trust in the organization. Mm -hmm. And this is something that we can't do for you. We can help you with, but we can't do for you. But with things like training and education and, and basically much bigger campaigns, which is now what we're helping with, that's how you can build trust. Plus, you need leadership buy-in. And that's, something, that's, again, something we can't do, but you can do. Yeah. You need to show that this, again, isn't a tick box exercise. We actually want to know. We want a culture of discourse. You're, this doesn't mean you're blaming people. It's not a call-out culture. You're not policing each other. You're just making sure that when things go wrong, you stick together. That's it. And that's a beautiful culture that we should all be fostering. Mm. And But you need people to repeatedly say that and to actually live that from leadership. Otherwise, it's never going to happen. Because a company is a direct mirror of its CEO and its leadership board. And if they're not like that, it's never going to be that company. And so that's why we've built out all these other pieces is because we're hoping that by doing things like microsurveys, we get much bigger data. We get people who wouldn't go out of their way to go to HR, but we get people as part of training. And again, just building cultural pieces is so, so crucial. Good. Oh, let's, um, let's, let's talk about the two books. Because <laughs> sure. um, so first, I'm going to ask. I really want to talk about evil, but we're going to start with the memory illusion. What, what, that's if people listening to this podcast want to find out more about Dr. Judy Shaw and the stuff that you publish. Mm -hmm. Start with the memory illusion. What can expect readers expect to learn from investing time in reading that book? Um, if you read the memory illusion or you listen to it uh, on Audible, uh, you it, it's come out in lots of languages too. So if English isn't your first language, there are options. But it's, I mean, the, the most likely thing you'll get is an existential crisis. So I think that's uh, step one. Um, it basically makes you hopefully doubt uh, whether any of the memories you have are accurate. But then it also, it, it, it's soothing to some extent because you go, oh, I thought it was just me who was misremembering or forgetting things or bad with names. And it, it helps offer some explanations for, for these kinds of errors that we make on a regular basis as human beings. And uh, it shows that even the most amazing 
minds in our in terms of memory in in the world that we know of yeah. what are called highly superior autobiographical memory individuals so h sounds um that even they have false memories and so nobody's immune and again it's, this, it's probably this core piece of being human and it's probably overall beneficial rather than harmful um but i, I think for me it's a really identity challenging book in a good way. Like I think everybody should have an identity crisis at least once a year, um, just to really think like, who am I? What am I? Like, and and I think it's a real call to sort of live in the present because the past is mostly fiction. Yeah. And so it's it's a call to sort of live forward looking rather than backward looking, which I think can in and of itself be quite freeing. Well, we're recording this podcast very close to a general election in the UK, and I'd be very interested if you did this memory science on some of our politicians. I'd also be even more interested if you did your study around evil without some of our politicians, without calling out any particular colours, although they might have blonde hair. Um, what, what can readers expect to learn from evil? Evil is, uh, so, so my books in general focus a lot on the reader, so it's always an exploration of yourself most, but it's always going on to sort of more extreme cases. And so with evil as well, I have basically, it, it's a manifesto against the word evil. It's a manifesto against monsterizing people and saying those people over there, they are evil and I yeah. am good. Because obviously I am always good, whoever I am. And so it's challenging that. And it's saying, no, we're all hypocrites. We all do things that are unethical, even in our own moral compass. Mm. Uh, like, why do I eat meat? I mean, that is completely against. So, like, I shouldn't do it, but I do it. Um, and so it's it's questions around why that happens, how we can become better people, if you will. But by using really extreme case studies and then sort of zooming in, zooming out. And so you get things from serial killers to... I mean, Hitler is in fact in there. I do sort of a thought experiment where I break down Hitler's brain and some neuroscience. Uh, and then I move up to things like compliance and social things and business settings. And there's a whole chapter on tech because I think a book on evil that doesn't have a chapter on tech right now is immediately outdated. Whoa, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, cybercrime is massive. And so, and, and trolling and uh, political hacking. I mean, all of these things are probably the biggest threats to humanity right now are online. And so we need to understand that as well. And so... The question is sort of why do we all, what, what can lead us all to do terrible things? What, why are we already doing terrible things? And um, what, if anything, is the difference between us and sort of really extreme cases? And have you done a study on leaders and their propensity to maybe do more bad things? I don't, I'm not yeah. talking about CEOs here as well, because yeah. there's a, it's quite a lazy comment, and it might be true that a lot of CEO, CEOs are narcissists. Um, psychopaths, actually. Psychopaths. Yeah. yeah. So, um, statistically likely to be psychopaths uh, compared to the general population. Um, so, I, there. One of my chapters is actually called "Snakes in Suits," which is uh, the corporate crime chapter, and it the, it talks a bit about. I mean, it's it's actually a chapter. It's a title from a famous book written by Dr. Robert Hare, who is actually the person who coined the modern version of psychopathy. So he created the checklist we used, and this was a few, couple of decades ago now that he. Wrote Wrote this, and uh, I mean, it, people who are cutthroat, which might, which for, in some business settings is useful, and maybe don't have as much empathy, sort of functional psychopaths, if you will, um, and aren't off committing crime because lots of psychopaths don't commit crime. Yeah. Uh, they they might well be your boss, and uh, they might well be not treating humans the way that other humans treat each other. But I also, I mean, even with the word psychopath, or narcissist too. I mean, narcissism, there's two different kinds. So there's there's narcissism, which comes from deep insecurity, which is what we normally think it is. Yeah. And there's narcissism because you think you're great. Yeah. 
Yeah. Which is different. So a teenager posting a selfie on Instagram going, look at my cute hair, can come from either. Yeah. But if it's actually coming from, I want to share this, I look cute today, that's great. That's fine. That's not actually, they're not more likely to be aggressive. They're not likely to be nasty. They're not going to be terrible leaders. But if it's coming from insecurity, that's where you get viciousness. That's basically where trolls come from, as far as I understand. Um, and that's where you get the, 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 bad, the dark side of narcissism. And so all of these things need to be unpacked a bit more so that we can use them and understand them. I think on a better level. And I think, unfortunately, about getting on the political side, we've probably covered a couple of really good examples of, of not that great narcissists who have very big jobs on the world stage at the moment. Yeah, um, certainly. Yeah. Um, I mean, narcissism is, I mean, saying things like that you want to be a leader because they don't build statues of journalists. Um, I mean, there's so many things that point to narcissism being, unfortunately, a core feature of quite a few politicians, not just now, but always. Mm. Um, same with, I'm sure, royalty or other versions of leaders in the past. So throughout human history, I'm sure this has been an issue. Um, but it's, I mean, what, what matters is also back to sort of business and organization. Yes, yes, sorry, we have to <laughs> pull it back to that. Thank you, you're doing the right thing there. <laughs> Is to understand structures and, and how, how, I mean, power can corrupt and you can create structures where dehumanizing others becomes the norm or, and where things like harassment or discrimination flourish because we're not looking out for each other because we're not in this together, we're all in it for ourselves. Um, that's a culture that you are creating and you have control over as HR but also as leadership um, in general. And so that's, I think, where we need to pay real attention, is making sure that we don't forget the humanity behind numbers. Because it's really easy to have enough tears. You go, well, it's not my responsibility. It's this person. Or that person instructed me to. Or I don't have a choice. You always have a choice. You can't outsource your morality. You shouldn't outsource your morality. And so I think that's where structures matter. And you, as an individual, should always remember and think, what, what does my job actually represent? Who am I representing? Is this in line with my moral compass? And how do I make it more in line with me? Well, we could probably talk about this all day because it's a fa absolutely fascinating topic and I'm definitely learning a lot um, in, a, in our conversation but we do have to start to wrap up this leads on to the question we ask all our guests on the show and I'd be really interested how you answer this actually what do you think the role of the HR function will be in 2025 which is only five years time now of course I think in 2025 HR leaders are going to be utilizing more technology even more than they already are and that they're going to be using this to overcome some of the fundamental biases that everybody brings into HR settings and into workplaces in general. And I think it's going to overall have an absolutely revolutionary impact on workplaces, on people's ability to speak up, on amplifying voices that we've never been able to hear before. And I think that um, that combined with a focus on inclusion and diversity, which luckily Luckily, we're seeing tremendously as a movement right now. Mm. I think we'll, we'll start seeing the payoffs. So I think in five years, those organizations who have been trailblazers now will really start seeing monetary and cultural payoffs, and they'll be thriving compared to their competitors. And so I think that is my hopeful uh, vision for, for 2025. Yeah, and I think you're right. I think we're seeing more and more now the business value mm -hmm. of inclusive and diverse organizations. And I think some, unfortunately with some people, even though it's clearly the right thing to do, I think mm -hmm. the only way to get some leaders in some organizations to actually change is to see, so they can see the business value of it. And start funding women and people of color. And well, yeah, like yeah. the fact that less than 2% of funding goes to female-led companies is, Shocking. I mean, 
<laughs> Get it together, people. Yeah. Um, I, it, it's it's bizarre to me that um, we don't see the obvious and correct calculations and go, well, obviously we should be investing in these people who have been underinvested in before because they have all this potential that we haven't tapped into. Mm. And now we there's this treasure trove that we can actually go into. Well, so they represent 50% of the human race. So why would too. you not invest in, <laughs> you know, equally in very close? So, so yeah, so hopefully uh, I think people will, will get it together and uh, see this as a real business case and um, drive a better future for companies. So thank you for being the guest on the show. Julia, how can people stay in touch with you via social media? And obviously, we'll provide links to the books and some of the TED Talks that you've done as well when we when we publish this this podcast. Sure. So I'm on Twitter at drjuliashaw.com. So just at drjuliashaw. Uh, I'm pretty consistent with my brand. So my uh, LinkedIn is also drjuliashaw. My website is also drjuliashaw.com. Um, and uh, generally, if you Google me, you should be able to find some videos and other things that I've talked about including some political videos, um, especially when we were trying to make Britain great again. Um, <laughs> I had a lot to say about that. Yeah, I'm surprised we haven't heard that line during the election. Yes. Dr. Julia Shaw, thank you very much for being a guest on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. You can subscribe by your podcast app of choice. If you did enjoy listening, please do rate the show on your podcast app and share it with your friends and colleagues via social media. We rely on your feedback and support to keep being able to make the podcast. If you haven't already, do check out myhrfuture.com for the latest learning and news on the future of HR. And you can also subscribe to my weekly newsletter there too. That's all for this episode, but please make sure you tune in next week when we'll be speaking to Dr. Zara Nanu on the role of people analytics in gender pay analysis. So don't miss that one and I'll see you next time.